Ezekiel 27. I think there might be a lottery curse. You likely haven't heard about the sad case of a guy named Abraham Shakespeare, real name, winner in 2006 of a $31 million lottery jackpot in Florida. He spent away most of his fortune by the time he disappeared early in 2009. His body was found last month under a concrete slab. A woman who had befriended him has been charged in connection with his murder. In Michigan, Willie Hurt won $3.1 million. Within two years after winning his fortune in 1989, he found himself divorced, penniless, and charged with killing a woman over a dispute for crack cocaine. Uh, here's a person, unusual name, Ibi Ronkeoli, won $5 million in Canada. Twelve years later, in 2003, they had turned her fortune into a $1 million debt. Her doctor husband, soon after discovering the financial mess she had made of their lives, injected her with a lethal mixture of painkillers. In 2004, he was convicted of manslaughter. Sudden wealth can be hard to handle. Now, I think I could handle it, but just, you know, it seems like some of these people had a hard time. But so can not-so-sudden wealth. The truth is, material prosperity of any kind can ruin you if you're not very, very careful. The Bible has a lot of warnings about wealth. One of the strongest and probably most well-known in the New Testament would be Paul's warning to Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, he wrote and said, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so here's the problem with wealth. It has a tendency to keep a person from having a dependency upon God. In the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the church at Laodicea was described as those whose wealth made them feel independent from God. Verse 17 of Revelation 3, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so because they were a wealthy church, because they had a lot of this world's goods, because they had material prosperity, they had lost their dependence on God. They were independent. But from his perspective, Jesus said, no, you spiritually speaking, you're miserable, poor, wretched, and blind. Now, our text in Ezekiel gives us an example of those who trust in wealth drowning in destruction and perdition. This city-state of Tyre that we've been talking about started last week. It's going to be likened to a great ship whose wealth is ultimately responsible for her sinking. The entire population, figuratively speaking, drowns because of their dependence upon material things. And so we begin in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. We've encountered this word lamentation before in Ezekiel. It is essentially a funeral song. It has a certain musical measure and is what we would probably call a dirge. This chapter is really a song sheet. It is the pre-written score 
for the ultimate demise of the city of Tyre. Tyre was still a thriving uh, city-state. We described it last week to you. There was a, uh, a mainland Tyre and then the main city built out on an island. Uh, and it was a thriving uh, center of wealth and commerce and trade at this time. And God says, no, here's the funeral song for Tyre. Uh, get ready to sing it. Now, the very fact Ezekiel was told by God to take up a lamentation for Tyre reveals the heart of God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As we are told by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I just feel it's necessary sometimes to remind ourselves of that. We know this is true, but especially in these Old Testament passages, we're in a section of Ezekiel, we're talking about God's judgment on nations. And so I think there's about seven nations or city-states that we're going to talk about that God is going to wipe out. Uh, and, and there's a tendency for us or for people to feel that in some way uh, this lacks you know, mercy or grace or compassion. But uh, the very fact that God writes this lamentation reveals his heart. He's not really willing that any should perish. And so let me make, uh, pause for a minute, make a theological note. As many of you know, there are some theologies that teach as biblical, without embarrassment even, that the idea God is not willing that any should perish must be limited to only those He has predestined to be saved. Otherwise, they say God cannot be sovereign because He wills for something that is not ultimately accomplished. I came across this quote from C.H. McIntosh that I think you will enjoy. I agree with it, and I think it's, it puts things very, uh, very matter-of-factly. He says this, Are passages like this one in 2 Peter 3, 9, uh, the one that says God is not willing that any should perish, he says, Are they to be taken as they stand, or are we to introduce qualifying or modifying words to make them fit in with our system? The fact is they set forth the largeness of the heart of God, the gracious activities of His nature, the wide aspect of His love. It is not according to the loving heart of God that any of His creatures should perish. There is not such thing in Scripture as any decree of God consigning a certain number of the human race to eternal damnation. Some may be judicially given over to blindness because of deliberate rejection of the light, but all who perish will have only themselves to blame. All who reach heaven will have God to thank. If we are to be taught by Scripture, we must believe that every man is responsible according to his light. The Gentile is responsible to listen to the voice of creation. The Jew is responsible on the ground of the law. Christendom is responsible on the ground of the full-orbed revelation contained in the whole Word of God. If God commands all men everywhere to repent... Does he mean what he says or merely all the elect? What right do we have to add to or alter really to pare down to accommodate the word of God? None whatsoever. Let us then face scripture as it stands and reject everything which will not stand the test. We may well call in question the soundness of any system which cannot meet the full force of the word of God as a whole. And so as we read about Tyre, think about Nineveh. God sent Jonah there to preach her doom, and we, rightfully so, we talk a lot about Jonah and his experience in the belly of the great fish and all of those kinds of things. But the remarkable thing about that is when 
he went to Nineveh with really not much of a message of hope. He just said, look, you know, I don't want to be here. I got barfed on the beach. Uh, you know, I'm still kind of feeling the effects of that. Centuries from now, scholars are going to debate whether I actually died or just swooned, but that's a whole other matter. Uh, Forty days from now, you're all toast. You're all history. And then Jonah went up on the hill to watch God destroy Nineveh. Well, the men and, and women of Nineveh repented. And the Bible says God repented. Now, all it means is that he acted according to his nature. And when, because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's a living example of it. And, and they repented. They gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's the heart of our God. And, and I uh, personally <clears throat> reject uh, any thinking that God uh, has limited uh, the scope of his salvation. Now we see Tyre compared to a ship in verses 3 through 11. And say unto Tyre, you who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all of your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make you a mast. Of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coast of Cyprus. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail. Blue and purple from the coast of Elishah was what covered you. Inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. Elders of Gibal and its wise men were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Those from Persia, Lydia, and Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arvad with your army were on your walls all around. And the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. I don't know if you're a person who appreciates great literature or not. I really don't know enough to put myself in that category uh, in terms of you know, literary appreciation. But I, I do know that there are certain things that can really move me when you read them. Uh, when uh, the, Well, for a long time in my life, every year I would read uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And then when we got married, I would read uh, them out loud to... Uh, Pam, and then later to the kids. It was kind of an annual thing. We would start, uh, some, let's see, did we start around Halloween and get done around Christmas time or something like that? And there were times, those of you, I mean, they're just some of my favorite books, but there were times I would read something and it would just be stunning. I'd have to stop and read it again, just the, the command of language, the use of words and stuff, and uh, it, it was an amazing thing. People who study literature say that this chapter in Ezekiel is like that one of the most beautiful in all of ancient literature for its uh, writing and its measure and its rhyme and those kinds of things. In it, we also see it's uh, full of ancient geography. You can spend hours or months mapping the places listed in these verses as ports and partners with the seafaring Tyrians. It gives scholars a rare glimpse at ancient commerce and politics. Now, I just wanted to mention the beauty of the literature and the depth of the geography because we sometimes forget that our Bible, it's not a slacker when compared to other books. 
uh, you know, uh, I mean, we already know that it's the, the book, it's the great book, but just on a literary level, uh, it, it doesn't fall behind. It, it, some of the most beautiful literature ever written is in the Bible, some of the greatest stories ever told. And if you really have an eye for it, you realize that a lot of the stories that are told in the world, in other literature, or even today in, in the movies, really have their basis in the biblical narrative. They're essentially Bible stories that are adapted. However, as always, our main concern and emphasis is with the inspiration of the Bible and therefore its application to us. Tyre was a sea power, sending ships all over the known world to trade, receiving ships from all over the world into her two main ports. And so God likened her to a great seaworthy vessel made from all the finest materials. She was an example of all that the world had to offer, of beauty and splendor and wealth and power and adventure. Figures or illustrations are always a powerful way to communicate the truth. Matthew 6, 19-21 employs a great figure to examine our priorities with regard to wealth. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, and so, you know... All over the scripture, God is trying to make this uh, point that we live in a material world, but we shouldn't get caught up in material things because they can't ultimately satisfy. And so he gives us different analogies to the people of Tyre who are familiar with seafaring and the ocean and all that. He says, you guys are like a great ship, but you're going to sink. Here in Matthew, we can understand the idea of somebody... Uh, perhaps breaking in and stealing. A lot of us, a lot of you have experienced that. In fact, I, I think, you know, robberies and burglaries are on the rise. Uh, you know, and a lot of you have had this experience. But even if you've never been burgled, uh, you, you know, spend most of your free time taking care of things that are rusting and breaking. You know, there's all kinds of maintenance that you have to do. Mostly at my house, deferred maintenance. Uh, and so, you know, if people say, are you doing maintenance? Yes, I am. I'm doing deferred maintenance. That means I'm really not doing anything. I'm deferring it to a later time till it breaks completely, and then I just get a new one. But uh, anyway, that's not working too well, by the way. Uh, but anyway, you know, and so we can all relate to that because you think, oh, yeah, I'm putting all my, uh, you know, I, I couldn't wait to get this thing, and the, the minute I got it, it got scratched or broken or dropped or, you know, whatever, lost, stolen, it started to rust, part of it was broken. Uh, and so why, why do I want these things so badly? Now the geopolitical lesson continues in verses 12 through 25. Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Those from the house of Tagarma traded for your wares with horses, steeds, and mules. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you for your wares emeralds, purple embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise wheat of minneth, millet, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus was your merchant 
because of the abundance of goods you made, because of your many luxury items with the wine of Helbon and the white of wool. Verse 19, Dan and Javan paid for your wares, traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs and rams and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded for your wares, the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Shilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes, in embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, and sturdy woven cords, which were your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled when, uh, and very glorious in the midst of the seas. And so, kind of like the Thursday farmer's market, uh, you know, in terms of the goods that were available. It's a little bit nicer than that, but anyway, maybe the Monday sale would be a better, <laughs> be a better analogy. But uh, anyway, so just a super description of, uh, you know, this is one of the, and this is one of those areas of Scripture, if you're not careful, you'll say, well, okay, who cares? Uh, you know, I mean, we don't live in this ancient world, and, you know, I, 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 I can barely, I've, I've said this to you before, but I don't even know where all of the United States are. Uh, you know, I have to always look at a map. I'm, I'm one of those people that really enjoys the Internet and, and having a smartphone because I can, I can know things, you know. I graduated high school, believe it or not, went to college, graduated, I have two degrees, I don't know anything that would be of any value. Uh, I couldn't find Rhode Island. I only know that Rhode Island is really small. And so I, when I, I could probably find Rhode Island. Uh, I feel bad... I, was, I don't know if you're watching anybody. I caught part of Bill O'Reilly tonight, and they were doing a, a, a segment that he does, and they showed some young kids on Jeopardy, uh, the game Jeopardy, and they showed a picture of Ronald Reagan, and they, that's all they did. They said, who is this president? And they, they couldn't get it. They said, Nixon, uh, Kennedy, and I thought, yeah, that's me. I, I barely know my own name, but anyway. So, however... We are also a great nation, the United States. We might be the greatest nation ever. Having said that, we must realize that there have been great nations, great empires in the past. Just because we haven't lived in them or, you know, or haven't studied them or don't understand them, uh, you know, I mean, without taking anything away from the greatness of our nation and the great experiment that uh, our government is, there have been really great nations before. That, that have done mighty things. Tyre was one of them. If we don't learn from her and the others, we're going to end up like them because history really does repeat itself. Our independence is never greater than when we are dependent upon God. No amount of wealth or political clout or military might can substitute for things that are spiritual. We must be a nation not just under God, but right with God. Otherwise, we will be like an eagle shot from the sky and then devoured by scavengers. I mean, it's, you know, if I was going to ask this question tonight, what figure might God use for our nation? I thought, well, we already use the figure of the eagle, you know, and we always think of that majestic bird flying around and nevertheless that it's a scavenger and we should have chose the turkey. But anyway... Um, 
But I think if God, you know, if we got to the point where we deteriorated farther and farther and farther away from the Lord, maybe we're there now. I'm, I'm not a prophet of doom or anything, but I think if God was going to write a funeral dirge about us, he would describe us as a, an eagle that seemed to be soaring beyond uh, reach that was suddenly shot out of the sky and then plummeting to the ground, we were devour, devoured by rodents or something. You know, I mean, and you think, wow, that's pretty heavy. But, uh, man, you look at all these nations that have come before us in the line of nations, and uh, we need to be right with God, not just under God. Now, verse 26 is a transition from Tyre's glory to her demise. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. The Babylonian Empire is here compared to the east wind that will break upon the ship of Tyre, heavy laden with her wealth, she will not be able to survive the storm. And that's kind of the, the picture. She has so much wealth, she's so heavy laden that when the storm comes, uh, she can't survive. It's kind of like all the shipwreck movies or stories you ever read where they start throwing things overboard to lighten the ship uh, so, so that they can survive the storm. And uh, Tyre is not going to be able to survive the storm that comes against her because of her trust in material things. Now, verses 27 through 36, sing of Tyre's doom. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas and the depths of the waters, your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. Tyre was an example to the other nations of the madness of putting trust in things that are material. Did the other nations learn the lesson? Do they ever learn this lesson? History is filled with the wreckage of nations that had the witness of God but disregarded it for their prosperity. Now, this attitude is going to play out in the future as well. The closing chapters of the Revelation describe a wealthy, powerful city, calling it Babylon, that will arise during the Great Tribulation. It, too, will be a center of commerce and entertainment and politics and art and really everything else. It will be like a world capital. But it, too, will fall, be destroyed as other peoples of the world watch and lament. I want to shift gears as we close for the next couple of minutes and say that we are wealthy. But I don't want to get into a tirade about how we're so wealthy compared to the rest of the world and all of our responsibility. I want to talk about the fact that we are wealthy, that we are rich actually spiritually. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
When anyone accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they're instantaneously enriched with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And they're declared by Paul the Apostle to be complete in Christ. The Apostle refers to these blessings as the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians. And that word means past finding out and unsearchable, not to be tracked. It doesn't mean they can't be listed or that you can't know what they are. The idea is that the believer's blessings in Jesus are too great to ever be measured. All spiritual blessings and resources are yours to claim now on the earth. In the future, in heaven, you'll have an inheritance waiting for you as well as a mansion and rewards. And, and, and so, you know, as we read this, uh, there's a couple of directions we need to go in. Number one, as wealthy, relatively wealthy individuals, we do need to heed the warnings of the New Testament and the Old Testament about not trusting in worldly wealth, not lusting after those things, not desiring it, knowing that the love of money is a root of many evil things. At the same time, we need to be more and more aware of our richness spiritually uh, and our wealth uh, as those who have salvation and all that goes with it. Billy Graham tells a true story told to him by a pastor he met in Scotland. There was a woman in the pastor's parish who was in financial difficulty and found herself behind in her rent. So her pastor took up a collection for her at church and then he went to her home to give her the money. He knocked and knocked and knocked at the door but never received an answer and so finally he had to leave. The next day he saw her in the market. When he encountered her, he said, I stopped by your house yesterday and was disappointed that there was no answer. Her eyes widened and she said, Oh, that was you? I thought it was the landlord and I was afraid to open the door. And Billy Graham uses this as an analogy for us as Christians, that God has so many amazing spiritual resources available to us, but so often we don't recognize that He's knocking at the door of our heart through our circumstances so that we will avail ourselves of those things. We live in kind of a fear that, that we, you know, the spiritual resources are not going to be sufficient, that we really need the material resources, or at least we need them in conjunction. Uh, and, uh, you know, God brings us into situations, I think, to show us that the material will fail and that the spiritual will prevail. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, set your heart on things above. Set your affection at the, where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. Uh, realize that we are all relatively wealthy and be a generous person, a gracious person, willing to help others uh, and draw from that spiritual wealth, those riches in Christ. Jesus made himself poor so that we might become rich in these spiritual things. Amen?